Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're looking at the life of Ezra. You can read Ezra's story from Ezra chapter 7. Just remind us of where the Jews were in exile and, and, and why they were going back. Yeah, so let's just recap the history a little bit. After Solomon's death, the nation had split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel had not just been exiled, but virtually exterminated in 721 BC when it had been conquered by the great empire of those days, Assyria. And its 10 tribes scattered across the empire, lost never to come back again. That meant Assyria was sitting on the doorstep of that nation of Judah, Jerusalem, what, 20 miles away from the border. And there were various threats over various times, but it stood still. But the prophets of the South said, you know, unless we turn back to God again, the same will happen to us that happened to the northern tribes. And everybody said, no, 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 it won't happen to us. And the reason they said that more than anything was that they had the temple. They said, this is the temple. This is God's temple. This is his home here on earth. He won't let anything happen to Jerusalem. And the prophets constantly said, if we don't repent, if we don't live a life pleasing to God, the temple will not save us. And it didn't. Because Assyria was replaced by Babylon. Now, Babylon had a much more aggressive expansionist policy. And so now, remember, only 20 miles north of Jerusalem, Eventually, Babylon decides it's time to take the nation of Judah. And in 586 BC, Jerusalem had been conquered, its temple completely destroyed, and its people exiled. There'd been a couple of mini exiles before that. Some people had been taken away, really as a, a threat. There'd been one in 605 and one in 597. But really in 586, this was the big one, when the vast bulk of the people had been taken into exile. But here was the difference from the exile of Assyria from the north. There, the 10 tribes had been scattered across the empire, dispersed, intermingled, never to come back again, never allowed to keep their identity. But Babylon took the exiled Jews back into Babylon, a thousand miles away would have been the journey. And they allowed them to stay in identifiable communities, which meant they could keep their culture, their faith, their inheritance. And actually, this was where much modern Judaism and certainly the Judaism of Jesus's time began to develop. But you know what? No great empire lasts forever, no matter how great. Assyria gave way to Babylon. Babylon, in its turn, will overstretch itself and crumble from within and be overtaken by Persia. And they had been exiled to Babylon, but Cyrus of Persia has conquered Babylon, and now they are part of the Persian Empire. But Cyrus has this very different approach to allow conquered peoples to go back home. And so as we pick up the story in Ezra, the first six chapters are about those early returns that people made to go back. Not many of them, probably 50,000 in the first group, it was really difficult to get 
them to go back. They got settled in life and in jobs and schools and everything else that perhaps we can understand. And this is like a thousand miles from Babylon back That's to a thousand mile journey back to the promised land, if you like. Yeah, and of course, for some of them, they would never have seen it. They've been in exile seventy years. Only those who were very old would have even seen this place. And now you've been asked to go back to a country that you've not even seen, but they're supposed to be your birthplace. So it's tough. And it is quite difficult initially to get some of those people to go back. So they didn't all return from Babylon to the Promised Land all at the same time? Not at all. Some of them didn't want to go back, remember, but others went back in waves. So the first group goes back in 538 BC. And that group, despite lots of opposition, is able to get the temple rebuilt, particularly encouraged by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, whom we find in the Bible. And eventually the temple is rebuilt, but there are still lots of them who've not gone back, and there are some who don't want to go back. So one wave has definitely gone back, but then there's a gap, there's a silence, until we pick up the story in Ezra chapter 7, which starts with the words, many years later. Now, we're probably looking at something like a 60-year silence that we know nothing about when no one had gone back, when those who have gone back had got on with starting to rebuild the temple, a poor reflection, really, of the first one. And now another wave is about to go back, and that's where Ezra comes into the story. So this is a sort of second group that return to the Promised Land. That's right. And what role does Ezra play? Well, as we read chapter 7, we find that Ezra is descended and is listed specifically from Aaron the high priest. So here's the first thing. This is a priestly man. But hey, hang on. What did priests do? During the exile, what does a priest need? Obviously, a temple. In fact, not a temple, the temple, as far as Jews are concerned. But the temple had lain a thousand miles away and was utterly destroyed. So what we ended up with in exile was literally thousands of priests who were now jobless. And what actually many of them ended up doing was what Ezra did and they ended up devoting themselves to the study and copying of the law that God had given through Moses instead. And the word that's often used to describe these people is, is the word scribe. To hmm. scribe means to write. We sometimes use that word, don't we? Hmm. And these, this group most definitely copied the law really carefully. Only certain people could do it. They did it very, very carefully. But as well as copiers of the law, they became teachers of the law, interpreters of the law. And that's what Ezra was, because we discover that he was a scribe. But chapter seven tells us that this Ezra was a scribe who was well versed in the law of Moses. Right. So he wasn't just copying the law. That's the, all the kind of instructions that God gave to the people of Israel. Didn't just copy them by rote, but actually understood them, read them, understood them. He read them, he understood them, and he was looking to apply them. So he comes back as both a priest, but as a teacher also. But it's really as the teacher that he comes up to Jerusalem. And the whole story is one really of God's favour uh, being upon him, that 
it tells us that the king gave him everything he asked for because the gracious hand of his God was on him. So Ezra is going to lead a second wave of people back to the promised land now in 458 BC, about 60 years after that first group had gone back. I guess there's a little lesson there about um, the skills or gifts that we have that we think sometimes have sort of gone into abeyance or aren't being utilised, but actually they're never wasted. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, clearly, as a priest, he would have been utterly committed to the keeping of the law. And remember, priests didn't do simply things like offer sacrifices. They were the public health inspectors in our terms of the day as well, examining, seeing if people were, were clean after leprosy. So they had to understand the law well, but Ezra clearly taken time in exile, like many of the others did, to give himself to the studying of the law in a new way. So nothing we've ever been and nothing we've ever done needs to be wasted in God's economy. And it doesn't sound as if he was just an academic. It sounds like he was a real people person. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he loved making the law live. He's, he's often seen as, if you like, the, the, the archetypal scribe. And um, he clearly loved what we would call, I suppose, Bible teaching these days. And, and not just teaching it. You know, you get some teachers sometimes who I think just love listening to the sound of their own voice. But you get some teachers who just get impassioned about helping people to understand what God's word is all about. And that's what Ezra does. Because remember, this is a really crucial time. They've gone back to the promised land. They're trying to regather as the people of God. But on what basis will this people gather? Unless it was a good basis, that is obedience to God's word, what was likely to happen was what had happened already. Because the prophets have been very clear that it was a lack of obedience to God's word that had led to the exile in the first place. So, so these teachers were really, it was not just like they got a passion for teaching its own sake. They wanted it to make a difference. But they also wanted to make sure that Israel never came under God's judgment again and so ended up facing exile once again. Because there must have been a situation where what was being taught clashed with what people's lives were demonstrating. They'd come from Babylon, many of these people, with what mixed marriages and all that kind of thing. Well, remember, too, they'd also come to people who had still been living in the land over that period. Because as well as the Jews being exiled, others had been put in the land from other parts of the empire. Some of the poorest had been left behind. And over this intervening period, there'd been a mixture of marriages and certainly since the return from exile. And I think we can understand it. It's, it's very natural. It's very logical. You've gone back and suddenly there's, there's no husband for me. There's no wife for me. Um, surely God wants to be married, but there are none of God's people for me to marry. So it looks like this person is the only one. And actually, they're you know they're a good person. They do believe in God, and they're sort of half Jews. They've got a, a a bit of our faith in with them. And immediately that makes us think of the situation today, where very often you will hear people saying, "I really want to get married, but there are no Christians in my church." So I'm going to marry a non-Christian. And in 50 years of pastoral experience, I can tell you that that never ends up easy. 
And so he comes to challenge issues like that. And for Ezra, it was a, an issue not just of disobedience. God had told his people in his word not to intermarry with those who didn't share their faith. It was really an issue of what sort of people are we going to be? Are we going to be a people who will follow God's word to the letter because he knows best for us? And are we going to be a community that lives in obedience so that we do never end up under his judgment and in exile again? So to what extent was Ezra trying to help the people to make a clean start? I think he very much wanted to do that. Um, he wanted to draw a line. And in fact, he's he's pretty tough with them. Um, and those who had intermarried, um, he made them put their wives away. Now, that sounds really tough. That does not mean abandoned. But what he meant was that they had to continue to care for them, but they couldn't live together as husband and wife because this was so crucial to the survival of God's people. This, this is like a, a crux time. And he knew that mixed marriages would be bad news. You only had to look through Israel's history. Think of King Ahab who married the Phoenician princess Jezebel and how she brought her gods and Baal worship in with her. It, it never, ever ends well. That, that's why the New Testament also, you know, underlines the same message that really God's people need to marry God's people so you're on an equal footing together. And he is, well, the wording is absolutely appalled in chapter nine when he finds these uh, mixed marriages because he knew what God's word said and he'd seen also where it could lead. Have we any sense of how that went down, how on earth people responded to that, how they then treated Ezra as a result? Well, in chapter 10, after he has done, he's challenged them about the mixed marriages. He, in chapter 9, he's, he's done a prayer of confession. I, I love that prayer because he identifies with them. You know, he, he doesn't do a prayer that says, oh, Lord, this miserable lot. He does a prayer that says, Lord, we, you know, I blush to lift up my face to you. Wow, that's a powerful prayer. What he a, includes himself. in What a pastoral heart that is. So this is not a hard teacher who says, this is how it is. He feels with them, but he feels also the shame of what they have done. He takes an, upon himself. And, and so in chapter nine, he he confesses this to God and he brings it before God. And then in chapter 10, we read that while Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women and children, gathered and wept bitterly with him. And it's interesting, it's when his own heart is touched that their heart gets touched. You know, sometimes we can perhaps hear teachers or preachers being very good and very clear with their preaching, but it's all very technical and you don't feel like you've got into their heart. Here was a man who taught very clearly, very unmistakably, what God required. But the pain and the passion of the situation got into his own heart. That could be seen and it moved the people. So I think it was as much how he responded and how he handled it as the teaching of God's truth itself that caused them just to weep and to, to go on to say, we've been unfaithful. 
to our God. So there is actually an incredible response. And Ezra ends up saying to them, well, it's fine crying. You're going to have to do something about it. You know, he won't let them off the hook. Sometimes, you know, we see a few tears and we think, oh, they're there. He wants to see the whole thing through. I want to see the tears turned into action. But it's not harsh. What I see all the way through Ezra is is a man who's lived this and believed in it himself. Uh, in fact, there's there's a, a really interesting part earlier in chapter 7 where it describes him as, as a man who was determined himself to live the word of God out. So he wasn't just a teacher. He'd set his heart to study and learn and do are the three key words. And I think people had seen that integrity in him. You know, people see through us. And I think here was clearly a man who set his heart to study the word, to learn it, to do it, to put it into practice. And people saw that in his life. And so when he weeps over this issue, it touches their own heart because they see this is not harsh teaching. This is hard teaching, yes, but hard teaching brought with such a tender heart from God. From what you said, Ezra clearly practised what he preached and that had presumably quite a significant impact on, on those people. Well, yes, it did. I mean, obviously there was a cost to it, you know, putting away wives that you had married. With the kids wasn't easy. Remember again, not to abandon. They would still have to support them, but not being able to live together. So it, there was a cost to it. This was a, such a crucial time in Israel's history. And what Ezra was wanting to do here was to re-establish Israel on a good foundation, on a foundation of obedience to God's word, that they didn't just drift back and drift into the same old ways again, but that they gave themselves wholeheartedly to God. So those prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, encouraged the rebuilding of the temple. The temple was rebuilt, not grand, but rebuilt. Now Ezra had come to try and rebuild society and put it on a good, strong foundation. Nehemiah would follow in a few years to rebuild the city walls. But what was able to come out of this? There was a cost, yes, but Ezra was able to unite a people once again around not just a nominal obedience to God, not a nod and a wink to him, but living it out in everyday life, even though it costs us because it's so important to have our lives based on a strong foundation of God's word. And in fact, this whole thing would lead to sort of a, a mini revival, might be too strong a word, but certainly a, a restoration of hope among the people of God at this crucial time in their lives. The role Ezra had to teach the people implies that the people needed to be taught. What, what had they perhaps forgotten? Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? We always assume when we read the Bible that these people always knew God's word and, and always lived by it. It's clear when we read the story of the Old Testament, they didn't. In fact, there's a really interesting story in the Old Testament where they actually rediscover a book of the Bible during King Josiah's reign, and they'd lost what we think was the book of Deuteronomy. And during refurbishment of the temple, the priest comes on and says, here, I found this book. And they read it and they discover it's, it's the law, almost certainly Deuteronomy. And they lost a book of the Bible and hadn't noticed. How can you do that? Amazing, isn't it? But it's almost as if these people had done the same, whether it's those who'd intermarried, who'd stayed in the land, those who'd been in exile and come back. Somehow they lost some key aspects. I mean, this key aspect of 
not intermarrying with unbelievers is pretty fundamental throughout the scriptures. How on earth could they lose something so fundamental? How on earth could Moses, wandering through the wilderness, forget that you're supposed to circumcise your little boys? And do you know what? I think sometimes we don't hear God's word when we don't want to hear God's word. And particularly if we've got a particular lifestyle and we know that if we were to open up a certain part of God's word, it were to challenge us. I think sometimes even today, we just, we just quietly forget that. Maybe we don't read that book of the Bible. Maybe we hear the sermon on a Sunday and we just let it skim over our head because we know if we let the word rest in our hearts, there would be some change that had to follow. And I, I think that must have been what happened here, even on something so fundamental and so Ezra has to get them back to the foundations and say, look, not intermarrying with unbelievers is really important to God. This is not just law. This is about his love for you and wanting to give you his best for goodness sake. But of course, if you're in such a marriage or you're looking for one, then it can be very easy to explain away. And that seems to be what these people had done famine or losing kids. It, it's about people. And what that shows us by engaging with people is that God is not like removed in the distance and superintending history in some general sort of way that gets the end result. He's involved with people. And it's people that he uses from start to finish to carry this story forward. And the great thrill about reading the Bible is as we read it, God is inviting us as people to become part of that story ourselves. Just to make it a little bit more personal to you for a minute, you clearly love the Bible. You've studied the Bible. It means an enormous amount to you. If you kind of had let that slip, if you weren't as disciplined, presumably, to read the Bible as you have been, how, how what might you have missed out? Oh, man, I don't even know where to begin with that one. The truth is, have I let it slip at times? Absolutely. Have I read my Bible every single day of the 50 odd years that I've been a Christian? I'd be the first to put my hand up and say no. And I think that's probably true for every single listener. But I have tried as God has helped me to build my life on it. And had I not done, I don't know where my life would have ended up. It would have been completely different. And it's been love for his word that's driven me to do all that I've done, whether it's to be a pastor and applying that in people's life, whether it's to be a lecturer, helping theological students grapple with parts of God's word, whether it's been an author, whether it's been a broadcaster. I mean, there's just been so many doors opened up through my love for this and through my giving myself to study it. You know, sometimes I've had people come to say to me and say, I wish I knew the Bible as well as you. And my answer to them always is, you can, but it takes hard work. It doesn't drop out of heaven. You have to read it. Sometimes you have to get a book or a commentary or an encyclopedia and think, I don't understand that bit. Oh, I see. And you have to get the wisdom of someone a bit wiser than yourself. But um, yeah, Ezra definitely has to be one of my heroes. As you reflect then on Ezra's life, what do you draw from the significant impact that he had on a large number of people? I think the thing that stands out for me, and maybe it stands out for me because I've spent much of my time in my life teaching the Bible, lecturing, writing. So he's one of my heroes. I love him because he's passionately committed 
to God's word. I love him because he didn't give up when he couldn't be a priest. He looks for another work to do where he can redirect his skills. I love him because of that phrase that Ezra set his heart to read and study and do the word of God. This was not just a teacher. You know, sometimes teachers can be busy teaching others and it doesn't affect their own life. Not this man. As we've seen, it, he's so tender and yet so challenging in the way that he brings things. So I think he's a reminder to us that in tough days, it's so important to get our lives firmly built on God's word. Will that be challenging? Oh, yes, it might be at times. But once we've got our lives built on God's word and are living them his way rather than our own way, it will always, always ultimately be for our good and for the good of his kingdom. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.